when we're able to speak to our shame, even like in a therapy setting and have somebody sit with us in it and connect and help us to move through it, it's less likely to embed. And I think shame is something that is often experienced with loss and grief, the shame of wishing that you could have done something different, feeling like there would have been some way for you to stop it. And that similar, not the same, but similar shame, I think is often experienced for trauma survivors, thinking if you had just done something different, you could have stopped it. Hello, my friends, Lisa Kefauver here, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives, and I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet we are so grief illiterate, and that is causing all of us so much harm. So through my work at Reimagining Grief and this show, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. As you likely figured out from the title of today's show, we're going to begin exploring the relationship between trauma and grief. My guest, Elise Kennedy of Moving Parts Psychotherapy, is a trauma-informed therapist who has a passion for supporting and educating her clients, the general population about trauma, and even fellow clinicians like myself about the myths and realities of what it means to experience trauma. Today, she will help us understand what trauma is and isn't, the relationship between grief and trauma, the importance of understanding our physiology, getting the right kind of trauma-informed support, and so much more. I do want to make note that we do talk about examples of trauma in the show today. That includes me sharing the fact that I experienced trauma as a teen prior to the trauma I experienced being with my husband when he died. And while I don't go into much detail, I just wanted to give you a heads up in case you aren't ready for that conversation today. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, Elise. It is so great to have you on the show. I have been thinking about this conversation for a long time now. I've been really, really excited to come on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. For those of you who don't already follow Elise Kennedy Instagram, you should be following. It's Moving Parts Therapy. Moving Parts Psychotherapy. Moving Parts Psychotherapy. Get it right, Lisa. (laughs) So much wisdom comes out daily that I learn all the time. And I'm sure for the folks who follow me at Reimagining Grief, you know that because I often share what you post. And it's really meant a lot in my own learning as a social worker, as a provider of services, but also in my own personal healing from trauma. So... Y'all, I'm just warning you, we're going to get deep. We're going to get, we're probably going to get silly. We're going to probably nerd out because we're a bunch of providers. Who knows where it's going to go? But I do know it's going to be a really rich conversation. So yeah, I'm excited to find out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You guys all get, we get to discover along with you. So I'm going to start, no surprise there, where I start all my questions. And I think as a provider, you know, as a psychotherapist, you can particularly appreciate the sort of understanding the cultural and the familial context to which we learn our beliefs. And so I was hoping you would take us back to your earliest memory of grief in your childhood and just help us 
understand how you think you learned or what you think you learned about what grief should or shouldn't look like and what you've learned since that time? I've been really lucky to not have a lot of tragic deaths in my life. And I know we often think about grief first as relating it to death, but my earliest remembrances of grief were very complicated relationships with death. The first person I knew that passed away was our uncle Julie, who we would go to his and my Aunt Ruth's pool every summer. They had a pool near us in the neighborhood. And so we would often visit with them and go to the pool. And when he passed away, I think that was my first funeral probably too. And instead of wearing black, I wore like this brightly colored paisley skirt. And I was the only one wearing bright colors at the funeral. And everyone was like, oh, wow. Interesting choice. (laughs) Yeah, you look beautiful. I think I was probably seven or eight, maybe. And it felt like a weird gaping hole. That house was such a presence in my childhood that it felt so strange not to have him there. And when we went to the pool the first time that summer after he was gone, I could swear I saw him looking at us over the fence. And I was recently thinking about this, actually. I'm not sure if it was really him and I was seeing his spirit or if it was me imagining just because it felt like such a missing piece at that house. But you could always still feel his presence there. And then my other big remembrance of grief was actually this was a tragedy. There was a crash with the middle school band, a bus crash with the middle school band of the middle school in my community. And four children were killed in the crash. And one of the children I had known because I went to elementary school with her. And I just remember seeing I'm Jewish. I know you mentioned you are too. Uh, I remember probably the high holy days that year watching her parents in the front row there without her and just almost feeling the grief more for her parents and knowing that I would always see her sitting with them. So I think these first early experiences of grief were really feeling the presence of these missing people. And that's changed a lot for me over the years as I've experienced different types of grief. But those are really my earliest memories, probably from between the ages of 7 to 11. Yeah. Well, those are some profound losses, certainly early on. And I'm curious, and I want to talk about family and culture and religion. We're going to, you go, we're going to dive into so many (laughs) topics because I was actually raised by an agnostic Jew and a basically agnostic Episcopalian. So my sort of religious and grief and death values didn't really come into play. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is when you were showing up sort of in your brightly colored dress and when you were having these sort of almost images or visions of the lost people and bringing them into your life, two questions really for you. One, did it bring you comfort or distress? And maybe the second, and this speaks to sort of how what your family taught you about grief or not, is that something you felt comfortable sharing with your family? Did you see outward expressions of memory keeping, of emotions? What was that like for you? 
Well, I remember with having that vision of Uncle Julie, or if that was his presence, it did bring comfort because I was like, oh, he's still here. With the young girl that passed away, that brought me so much anxiety because when a child passes away, especially one that's your own age, it lets you know that your life is finite too. It's so confrontational to the child. I mean, to all of our minds, even us adults, but especially to the child mind. Yeah. And I had immense death anxiety when I was a kid. I have so much more comfort with it now as I've learned more and I've witnessed more in my life. But as a kid, I was terrified of dying. And so seeing, oh, they went on a trip and they didn't come back. That is such a devastating and scary thing to think about. Were you able to talk with your parents at the time back then that you were having this? Like, did people know, did your family know that you were having anxiety around that? I don't think so. My anxiety ended up manifesting in panic attacks and actually thinking I was dying. And then around that age, I went to therapy for the first time. But I don't remember talking to my parents about it. I think because I believed in ghosts, I believed in life after death in some form. I felt like I had seen spirits or felt them in some form. And my family just kind of said, like, that's not real. You don't have to be afraid instead of talking to me about it and asking me what my beliefs were. And so I think that kind of shut down talking about it for me. My family is wonderful, and they have a lot of avoidant tendencies about things like this. Hard things, yeah. I love that you pointed that out, the and. First of all, my listeners know my that's my favorite word. <laughs> but second, I think you pointed out these revelations or these reflections, I guess I would say, about what it is we learned in our growing up life isn't a recipe to sort of blame our parents, who are, by the way, doing the best they can. And I'm raising my daughter, who's just about to go off to college, and she's going to have a whole host of things that if she ever sat down on a podcast would say all the things I did wrong, (laughs) even though I do this work in grief. So I appreciate that you sort of just made visible. This isn't about judgment. This isn't that they aren't good people. They were doing the best they could. And their actions, again, sometimes explicit or implicit, really shape what we believe to be okay and not okay, what's safe and not safe. Yeah, it's interesting because I think about with my older child, she's six and We've always been very explicit in the way that we talk about death, and there are much better books these days so that I don't have to figure out how to necessarily talk about it with her. But the first death that she experienced was a fish, like many kids, and immediately I read her this book called Death is Stupid. I don't know if no, you know No, I don't know, know it. it. I'm okay. It's a book that literally just explains what death is. And these are the ideas about death. And I can let you know the author later so you can put it in the show notes. Yes, perfect. And it frames it as like... This kid is upset because his grandma passed away. And then it says, and pets pass away. And some people believe that people go to heaven while other people believe other things. And so it's been a great framework for having her ask me questions and us just talking about it right away. So then after the fish, like she lost and her great grandmother and I lost my grandmother And we were able to have really frank conversations about it. And she'll still say, like, 
oh, I miss Gigi and we'll talk about the things that Gigi loved and stuff like that. So it's also opened up my thoughts about how I can talk to my kids about death and grief so that they can get a new way to experience it. Whereas I felt like I had to shut it down. They can speak up. See, this is intergenerational change, which you all know I'm always talking about. And that's why I want to change these narratives of grief. But we have to do the work ourselves. I know so many helping professionals who have not come to grips with their own comfort around their own grief. And so just sort of avoid it as a topic, let alone parents and friends, et cetera. So I appreciate the fact that you made that visible and that you're on the show today to help continue to make these narratives more available and accessible to us and to have it be not such a big, scary idea that we don't know where to start. So today I want to start with speaking of big ideas not the scary part, but the big ideas. I know your specialty is in trauma. And so I want to orient our conversation today because we're going to explore trauma, the relationship between trauma and grief, various treatments. We're definitely going to talk maybe a a little bit about intergenerational ideas around that, around passing down trauma, and also about the ways in which we can grieve for the identities of ourselves before the trauma happened in our lives. But can you start with kind of a good primer, Cliff Notes version of how do you see trauma? How would you define trauma? So my personal definition of trauma is that it is a physiological response to scary events that happen where the nervous system, not the rational brain, but the nervous system perceives that real or imagined death is imminent. And so a lot of times we think of trauma as labeling certain events as trauma. Sometimes we might even joke about it. Like this morning, my dad joked that him trying to put ink cartridges in the printer was traumatic for him. And I said, please don't. Please let's not trivialize that word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it is the body's response to the event. So that means that some Something that is traumatic for one person might not register as trauma for someone else. And a big key to what registers as trauma and what doesn't is if the event happens in isolation or perceived isolation. Because the first thing, the first threat response our body usually reaches for is connection. And that's why grief can be so traumatic because often grief can happen in isolation. And I'm sure we'll get into more about this, but if you think about the different ways that we grieve, often traumatic grief registers as traumatic grief because you are feeling alone during it. Whereas if you're surrounded by community as you grieve, you're less likely to have it register as trauma. When we come back, I asked Elise to explore more explicitly the relationship between grief and trauma, asking pointedly if she believes that all grief is traumatic. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Elise Kennedy. Y'all, 
we're about to nerd out here. I have so many questions, reflections. We talk about this often. I'm so glad you brought up that piece around, well, there's so many things that you brought up there. One is that an event itself isn't traumatic, and this isn't labeling each of the people, but different people, depending on their history, their social location, whatever else is happening, can experience at the same event as either traumatic or not. I also appreciate the way that you brought into light this notion that it is perceived as trauma by our our nervous system because we cannot sort of soothe ourselves or return through connection and belonging, which I talked earlier this season with John A. Powell from the Othering and Belonging Institute on the show, and we talked a lot about this is sort of our innate drive, right, Be- being belonging and community. And when you think about the running from the saber-toothed tiger that we did all those years ago when we had an event that happened to us, if we can make it back to the cave and be surrounded by our community and be okay and discharge, our nervous system could settle down. And as you said, so many of us lose the people who we might exactly be the ones we would go to for our comfort and for our connection. So yeah, hugely important. I appreciate you sort of helping frame, you know, where we might start this conversation today. Do you have a sense that all grief is traumatic? Only some kinds of grief is traumatic, that people can grieve different losses, some traumatic, some not? How do you see that? Because I see people sometimes interchanging those two words, and I'm curious your perspective. So I don't think all grief is traumatic. I see grief as a normal, healthy process, and which is also a physical process that our nervous system goes through. The way we digest grief has an impact on whether or not it's traumatic, which is why I love that you have a podcast normalizing grief, because the more we normalize grief, the more we don't see the grief as alarming and we recognize it's a completely normal part of not just death, but of life. Yeah. And I love that you said that it's a nervous system response. Of course, folks who follow my work at Reimagining Grief or listen to the show know that my answer is grief is a totally normative response to loss. And sometimes we do have traumas associated with it. But part of the reason that I do this show, but that I do mindfulness uh, meditation with people and other things is we have to first start by talking about it so that we can shift the narrative so that our body can perceive things differently. But it really is an embodied experience. And I don't think we give enough light to that notion that we really have to, we can't sort of talk our way out of things. And you all know that if you've had a feeling that felt totally irrational and you try to intellectualize your way out of having that thought or having that feeling, often what has happened is your nervous system, right, has sort of hijacked, taken over. Exactly. And one of the ways I work is as a somatic therapist, which is recognizing how trauma and emotions show up in the body. And so I've gotten to know my own body sensations really well. And I can distinctly feel in my body the difference between feeling grief versus feeling sadness. And I'm sure Most people who listen to this podcast have experienced the feeling of grief, and it is so distinct from the feeling of sadness that you feel in your body. And so that's why I really highlight that it is a nervous system response. It is something that your body is digesting, and it's very different from other emotions. Y'all, I have so many thoughts and so many (laughs) questions. Well, Now that we sort of laid the foundation for what is trauma, that trauma is a physiological response in our body, that trauma can accompany grief but doesn't always have to, 
I want to spend some time again, maybe at the high level before we kind of dig into the details about one of the most common interventions for trauma that folks use across all kinds of traumas, but I know a lot of folks have used in the relationship between trauma and grief. I will just share, I think I've shared it on an episode before. I absolutely participated in EMDR for several traumatic experiences in my life, but one of which was being in bed with my husband for those last eight hours till he died. And I kind of needed to work through that. So I guess my question to you is, why EMDR works, how it works. And if you can sort of start with the notion, and maybe I've got this right, we'll see, is that we usually are able to sort of file experiences away as stories. And when we perceive something as a traumatic event, we can't really remember it. We actually relive it. Is that a fair explanation? Correct. Well, reliving it could be one of the symptoms. So when the body registers something as trauma, the narrative memory is stored separately from the body memory and certain sensory aspects of the memory. So the memory could be awakened when you smell something that reminds you of the trauma. It could be awakened when you touch something that reminds you of the trauma or when you see something that reminds you of the trauma, even if you don't know in your conscious mind that you're being reminded of the trauma and something is being awakened in you that's when your body launches into a response to try to once again protect you from that threat. So that's where we talk about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn slash pain. And so if you're noticing that you're having triggers brought on after a loss, that's where it could be traumatic grief that's being experienced. So EMDR, it was developed in the 80s, I believe, and it's really become this powerful form of therapy that's backed by a whole lot of research that helps us to digest the memories so that we're accessing the sensory pieces of the memories, we're accessing the narrative pieces of the memories, even if you don't have the narrative pieces and you don't don't remember. And it helps us process what's stored in the body related to the memories. And so the story of how it was formed is really cool and I think helps to explain how it works. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah. which is... <laughs> Just a fancy way to say that you move your eyes back and forth or do something back and forth, like some therapists use little buzzies that vibrate back and forth in your hands. And that accesses the parts of your brain that help you digest the memories in the moment. So Francine Shapiro developed EMDR and the story goes that she was thinking about something that felt very stressful and walking through a park and she saw people playing tennis. And so she started moving her eyes back and forth with the tennis ball. And she realized after she did that, that the memory she was thinking about felt much less distressing. That is how EMDR was formed. That's by just... an amazing story. I've yeah. never heard that before. I thought you were going to go into like vets coming home from the Vietnam War and no. Okay. Just a tennis game. Uh, Love it. Okay. Yeah. So after that, she was a therapist 
therapist, obviously. And she figured, oh, there could be something here. And after researching, what she realized was during our REM cycles while we sleep, our eyes are moving back and forth, processing the events of the day. And so with EMDR, we target specific memories or images while acknowledging the body sensation that comes up, the emotions that come up, and sometimes sensory pieces too. And by bringing it online and doing the bilateral stimulation, it processes the memory to make the memory less distressing. Gotcha. Yeah. Because for so many people, we basically went into either flight or fight, as you said, freeze or fawn mode. So we never actually processed what happened is kind of what you're saying. Right. And a piece of that I forgot to say, too, is that when the trauma is happening, part of why it doesn't register the way memories are supposed to register is because we're not able to complete the trauma response. So we're not able to carry out what our rational brain and body wanted to do in that moment. And so because it went offline. Exactly. Yeah, because it went offline. And so EMDR also helps to in a safe space with a safe therapist helps you have a disconfirming experience where you're experiencing safety in the moment while you're bringing this memory online and restoring your consciousness. Sort of able to complete that cycle that never got to be completed. Exactly. Yeah. As I said, I can say from my own experience, it has been absolutely transformational in my life, again, over several different kinds of traumatic events. And I know I've had Kelly Abbott was on our show season one, whose young son drowned and he was there. And he gave a shout out up to the power of what that was, particularly when you're thinking about a traumatic or an accident or something. Yeah. I know folks might have heard the word triggered. So I'd love to kind of get into, because we in the sort of grief community writ large, the big we, yes, and I do it too, often use the word triggered in the like, Like, for instance, this summer, August 16th is coming up. That's the 10-year anniversary of my husband dying. So I might say something like, the calendars, oh, it triggered me to have a big grief episode. How would you think or help folks explain how they might discern the difference between normative, quote-unquote, triggers or sensory input that is, of course, bringing on the normative response to grief versus a traumatic trigger and the response that happens as a result? That's a good question. So when a trigger happens, we often have no awareness of it and we often have no way to get out of it. I think a lot of people think that with therapy and with more understanding around what happened, that when a trigger happens, you'll have enough skill to stop it. But that's not true because when you're triggered, your body is going into a physiological response to protect you in some way. Again, meaning your rational brain is going offline. Exactly. Just like we know that when a child is having a tantrum, we're not able to access their rational brain in that moment. So any words that we're saying just sound like... No matter how much we try (laughs) as parents. (laughs) Sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. That's exactly what I was going to say. Sounds exactly like Charlie Brown's teacher. (laughs) And so if you're having more awareness around it and you're recognizing in that moment, for instance, like, oh, I'm looking at the calendar and I'm noticing like a sinking feeling in my chest. I have some awareness around what's coming up for me. That might be a grief response rather than a trigger. And I really like that Bonnie Badenoch, who's 
a therapist and just an incredible human. She talks about that trigger is actually kind of a violent word and has reframed it to awakened. Mm, I love that. Okay. And I really like awakened because I think it can also fit for moments like that where you're having a grief response and you're having some awareness around it, but it also feels like something that's not quite triggering because your conscious brain isn't totally offline, but you're noticing there's something happening for you. So we've become awakened to this input. I mean, really, it's this sensory input that's calling us back to a time or to an emotion that's bringing emotion to us. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine mindfulness as a tool is incredibly important in your work, particularly, again, helping us attune to our own bodies so that we as you said, it's impossible to keep emotions from coming, to keep, you know, events from awakening us. But the degree to which we can be mindfully attending to and noticing that allows us to sort of travel through that time in less distress. Exactly. And it gives you more permission to just feel it. I think of grief also as honoring the loss and Most of us probably will never fully complete a cycle of grief because you're always going to feel that pang of missing someone or missing a part of you or whatever the loss might be. And in being able to watch your thoughts like we do when we're mindful and know that it's not a trigger, it's a grief response, it gives us a lot more permission to just be with it and recognize This is also me honoring myself and that person and my relationship with them. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, CEO and founder of Reimagining Grief. If you'd like daily digestible tools, resources, and information about grief and navigating a grief journey of your own, Don't forget to follow me on all your favorite socials at Reimagining Grief. I love everything about that. And I appreciate the way in which you brought forth this idea that we are, grief will travel with us. I sometimes refer to grief as our traveling companion, you know, in life, and that we don't need to sort of fear that or tuck them away that we can develop these capacities to be accompany them and also recognize. And the more we do that, I always say, the more we recognize our capacity to travel with them at times, but they're not by our side all the time. And the more you can be attuned and aware to that time where you feel a lot of rage or feel a lot of sadness or whatever the emotion is, and then you watch it pass, then you can have that embodied memory of like, oh, this feels intense, but I remember it felt intense two weeks ago or two months ago, and then I was fine for a while. And that gives us some breathing room, right? Some space. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned something, which is a great segue for me. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you today about is this notion of grieving non-death losses. And I'm thinking particularly as we think about folks who've experienced trauma, the place I'm curious to start with is your thoughts on what it means to give ourselves permission to grieve the version of us that sort of, I don't know if you would use the word died that day or was lost that day you know, when whatever traumatic event happened. How do you think or how do you work with clients or even from your own personal story, if you want to share, what does it mean to grieve for that version of ourselves? Well, along with EMDR, 
a modality that I've really come to love in therapy and has been really transformational for me as a client, as well as for the folks I see, is called internal family systems therapy. Feels at first like a way of working, but then it becomes a way that you see the world. But it's this idea that we all have parts inside of us, and those parts do different jobs. They all have different functions, and the parts can represent different ages or different versions of you. And so if you think about the movie Inside Out, that was actually the IFS folks worked on Inside Out. Oh, great. Which is okay, really I'm going to go neat. watch that again now yeah. with that lens in mind. Okay. <laughs> and so Inside Out has this visual of the little emotions running around in Riley's head. And that's how we can kind of think of parts. They show up in us as images, as sensation. And when we listen to the parts and understand them, we can get messages from them. And some of those parts, especially the ones that developed in response to trauma or who are kind of stuck close to the trauma, in IFS speak, they consider those parts to be exiles. And they're often the parts that other parts that do certain jobs are trying to protect. Like, I know I have a people pleaser part that is really trying to protect these teenage parts within me that were closer to the trauma that I experienced. And so in thinking about it in terms of parts, it's neat because I don't view us as ever losing parts of ourselves. And we can also acknowledge that there are losses that come following trauma. After we endure a significant trauma, and especially if we experience PTSD or if we experience complex PTSD, we go into survival mode and we live for such a long time in survival mode. And we may display behaviors that we're either not proud of or that don't feel like they were helpful at the time when we look back on it. But when we think about it, those are the survival responses that our bodies were trying to use to complete the trauma. Do you think of it as also protecting those other parts of ourselves that got exactly that were kind of took the hit of that? Exactly. Yeah. So in IFS speak, we think of the survival mechanisms as parts. So you might have like a fighter, you might have a part that wants to run away or that tries to run away every time stuff feels too hard. You might have a depressed part. And so now I'm to the point where, especially as a trauma therapist, I can recognize like, wow, I would have never been here if I hadn't endured the trauma. And side note, you never need to find a silver lining in your trauma. Hey, oh, we're going to come back to that. <laughs> Not every, I don't believe in everything happens for a reason. Yes. And... And I call those AFCOs. My listeners have heard me talk about that. Another that. fucking growth opportunity. Yes. yes. It's and. Yeah. And I can recognize that. So... Some of my most significant traumas happened very close together in my 20s. And after that point, my life became trying to correct what had happened to me. Everything was really a struggle. Like I had a great job, but I was having a really hard time with it. I was numbing out with alcohol. And I luckily had an incredible group of friends I was also trying to like write 
my trauma narrative while I was stuck in it. I was convinced I was going to write a memoir because every good memoir happens when you're 22. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I look back at that time and I often feel a lot of grief for that 22-year-old part of me and I can still feel her inside and she's done a lot of healing since then and I've worked with her a lot. But I have a lot of grief around like if that stuff hadn't happened, you really could have done something great. Like you really could have been better at your job at the time if that stuff hadn't happened. Like you might have been a high. I was working at a record label. And so I think like, oh, I could have been a high level executive by now. I could have been finding the next great artist. Beyonce. I could have discovered yeah, Beyonce. I could have yeah. discovered Well, you're Beyonce. too young. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I I yeah. could have possibly discovered well, that, Beyonce. That speaks to what the other aspect of this that I was talking. Well, so many things here. One is I love this notion that we can be bring self-compassion and be in relationship to all these aspects of ourselves, or as you call them, parts. And I that really speaks to me and my narrative therapy and my training about how we sort of look at these versions of ourselves and can kind of step outside of ourselves and see ourselves with compassion and understand the ways in which we were doing the best we could at the time with each of these different aspects of ourselves. But what you just brought up too, which I think is true of again, grief writ large, is we don't just grieve the loss. We often grieve all the future dreams that won't come to pass. And that includes when we think about the kind of trajectory we end up on, those of us who've experienced trauma. I experienced trauma as a teen, and I have been a hypervigilant. I've experienced many traumas, I should say. But I experienced rape at 15, and I have been hypervigilant ever since for the last 35 years. I never go to a parking structure. I never go into a building. I never go anywhere without awareness. Now, I've done EMDR and I don't feel that I, you know, become in a traumatized state, although it has happened. But I have spent some time grieving for the Lisa that never got to navigate the world sort of as my friends do. I have girlfriends who like strap on a headlamp and go hiking in the mountains in the middle of the night. And I'm not kidding with a dog. And I remember in grad school saying to her, like, I don't even understand how you do that. I was happy for her. Like, how cool is that? But I grieve often for the versions of me that I never got to be. And as you said, I absolutely love what I'm doing and I wouldn't be able to do this work if all of that hadn't happened either. When we come back, I asked Elise to explore what it means to grieve the versions of ourselves and our lives that we didn't get to become in the wake of trauma or in the wake of loss. We also explore the relationship between shame and grief and trauma. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Elise Kennedy. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Tell me a little more about this sort of how we give ourselves permission to grieve the what didn't becomes. Yeah. And I think this is so important, too, when we think about the loss of a person. I work with uh, perinatal folks as well. And so especially with pregnancy loss, that is such a specific type of loss that makes me think so much about how these moms are grieving. And dads. And dads. I, I was corrected the other day, and I just want to give That's a shout true. out to the dads, too. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> these moms and dads and everything in between. Yeah. They are grieving what could have been and the life 
that they didn't get to have. And we experienced that as trauma survivors, especially those of us who did endure trauma at such a young age. I think about, yeah, the hypervigilance rings so true. There was a period of time where I was terrified to walk my dog at night alone, and I feel bad for her. She's still with me, Dreidel. <laughs> Dreidel. But I still feel bad and like spoil Dreidel for those times that I couldn't just be a casual dog owner and go on walks. And I knew the walks would be so healthy for me, but I just couldn't do it. Because there was an embodied response and there was a part of you, then that's where I think about the self-compassion for those parts of you. And this can be a part of your grief work if you're listening and this is resonating for you because you have grief that is connected to trauma or just separately from the grief reason you're listening to the show, you have trauma, which I think so many more of us have than we really account for. But I think about like, as you do the work of grief, as you attend to your trauma, I think one of the things that I've appreciated is being able to, instead of being frustrated by my hypervigilant part, by myself, and though I still do honor the grief, I also sort of sometimes look at that version of Lisa and say, thanks for having my back. Thanks for looking out for me. Yeah, the hypervigilant parts of us, because I certainly have one too, those are the parts that are going to show up in the zombie apocalypse. So we're ready, y'all. We are ready. As much as we might have missed out on some things at that time, I can also honor and hold compassion for the fact that that part of me helped me survive and probably did help me stay out of situations that might have been dangerous. Even though she was overprotective, she also did keep me out of danger. And the other thing that I really like around this type of thinking is that in the self-compassion that we usually think about, we think about having full self-compassion. And for trauma survivors who have often fragmented parts of self just because of how our memories register, not because there's anything wrong with us. Totally normative response once again. Yes. It can be very hard to have compassion for the full self because parts can come up that get in the way of us having compassion. And so if we can get to know those parts of us and just hold compassion for those parts, it can be a lot easier to build in self-compassion rather than this idea that can feel really grand, especially when we do hold so much shame and guilt and other difficult feelings around what happened. Yeah. I love that. That's so beautiful. I use, obviously, I talk about self-compassion a lot. I practice it myself, and I appreciate the way in which you sort of made visible, once again, that for many of us, it can feel like such an intellectually great idea yet we struggle to put it into practice. And I think to your point that sometimes because we haven't really sat with and attended to those aspects of ourselves or those parts of ourselves that need to be held and witnessed, you know, in a way and sort of brought a little back online so that we can hold them with compassion. You brought up shame, which is a big topic and again is commonly intermingled, I will say, of course, with grief and particularly around traumatized grief. I have listeners often talking to me about shame. What what have you learned in your work about shame? What do you think is important for folks to know when we're thinking about how we attend to shame, what shame does to us? Shame is one of the most powerful emotions. 
And shame is something that nobody will get out of experiencing. Um, 100% of us are going to die and 100% of us are going to experience shame (laughs) in our life. You're welcome. Welcome to Happy Talk with Elise and Lisa. Yes. (laughs) Sorry if we're just breaking the news. But often our first experiences of shame are with our caregivers and There's almost a sense that we have to experience shame because we have to learn what's right and wrong. And so I've really latched on to this idea around healthy shame and dirty shame. And so there can be a healthy shame of like, it is absolutely not okay to throw a block at your brother. And my daughter can, will feel shame and internalize that. And then I will connect with her in order to make sure that she moves through the shame in a healthy way, because no matter what, she does know what's right and wrong at six years old. And so she's going to experience some shame around her lack of impulse control, leading her to throw a block at her this brother. This feels like a real story. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I'm going to sit with her and let her know she's not alone in her shame. Again, back to that connection and belonging, bringing us back into community. Exactly, and work through it. When we experience shame that is isolated, and often certain shame we feel like we can't talk about with anyone, when we experience shame that is isolated or that we feel like we have to be silent about and sit in it alone, it's more likely to embed deeper within us and even fall into like a shame spiral or lead to depression. And so when we're able to speak to our shame, even like in a therapy setting and have somebody sit with us in it and connect and help us to move through it, it's less likely to embed. And I think shame is something that is often experienced with loss and grief, the shame of wishing that you could have done something different, feeling like there would have been some way for you to stop it. And that similar, not the same, but similar shame, I think, is often experienced for trauma survivors, thinking if you had just done something different, you could have stopped it. Could have avoided it, yeah. Well, I I appreciate you helping us recall bring to light again this idea that shame sort of grows in darkness, grows in isolation. Our fellow Texan, Brene Brown, of course, you all know, have life's work and research has been on this. So when it stays in the shadows, when it stays in the silence, which is often a reinforcing thing, especially if you have shame around something that's stigmatized sort of by the broader community, it grows. And it's not the kind of healthy shame, which I guess you use that word healthy shame, which actually helps us learn how to sort of be in community with each other in an appropriate way, right? Sort of to modify our own behavior. That kind of shame kind of continues to sort of self-perpetuate and further isolate us. Yeah. What do you think if, if someone's listening right now and this is resonating for them, what would be a good first, I don't know, saying or action or I think about putting your hand over your heart and doing that talking to yourself kind of idea of like having some self-compassionate talk. But what would you say to somebody who's this is resonating for? What would be a good first step? 
Well, if you're in it and experiencing shame right now, first of all, notice your body posture because when we're in a shame posture, exactly, you can't see it. But Lisa just hunched over and put her head down and she knew exactly what I was thinking of. When we're in a shame posture, we're usually hunched over. It feels very constricting. For me, my shame usually shows up like a sinking in my stomach and can almost feel a little nauseating sometimes. And just noticing the difference when you move out of the hunch and you just sit up straight, making your spine as straight as possible and just noticing how that shifts what's happening with the shame. If there's a different sensation that comes up, If you notice any messages coming from the shame and then maybe seeing if you can pinpoint where the sensation is of the shame and even allow some compassion to move toward the shame, just toward the shame. You don't have to have compassion for all of you, but if you can just offer some compassion toward the shame and just notice how that changes things for you. Yeah. I love that. I think, again, this sort of somatic notion about how we can use mindfulness and when we can attend to the ways in which our emotions live in our body. Again, the purpose isn't to not have them, but to be able to have the tools that we might need to help us not just move through them, but also learn from them, notice that they're there, and then give us that helps us. We can't change things if we don't know they're there, of course. That's a cliche, everybody knows it, but it is never more true when I think about the emotional psychological, physical work of grief and trauma exactly. is we have to first notice. And that takes practice because we sort of, again, live in this broader culture that sort of disconnects us from our neck up and our body down as if we have mental health and health, by the way, which drives me absolutely bananas <laughs> that we sort of dislocate those two things, right? Yeah. yeah. And it can be scary to notice at first. It can be really scary to start tuning into these things, especially if this is something that's very new and different for you. It can feel a lot easier to compartmentalize. But the reason that compartmentalizing, I don't want to say it doesn't work because it does serve a purpose. And I have compartmentalizing parts too. We all compartmentalize at times. And it serves purposes at different times. And (laughs) And if we put it fully away and we never touch it, and we never look at it. It just stays inside of us. Yeah. I always say that. It's, I mean, you know, folks who follow my work know I've sort of did this metaphor and did this poem about inviting your emotions over for a cup of coffee. And I appreciate what you were just saying about this compartmentalization. I often say that doesn't mean you have to sit around all the time in your cross-legged zen, feeling your feelings kind of thing, or that the emotions are always stopping by one after the other for a cup of coffee, but they don't go anywhere. Really, our thoughts and emotions need to sort of be seen and held and have compassion for them. Just like we need to be heard and our voice needs to be heard, so too do our thoughts and emotions. That doesn't mean they're right or true in the sort of capital T sense, but they need to be heard. And when we spend so much time compartmentalizing, which again, sometimes useful, sometimes not, sorry, we don't live in a binary world, (laughs) then it just kind of hangs around and then comes out in all of these behavioral ways. I mean, that sort of can get traced back to the sort of the avoidance or the compartmentalization, which is why sometimes, by the way, as you start to do the grief work as an adult, let's say over a current loss, you 
are starting to unpack an old grief that never got to be attended to, never got to have its day in the sun, as it were, or sort of to be held and noticed, comes flooding up. And it's not because you're losing it or whatever you know expression you want to do. It's because you're finally starting to open the box and to stop compartmentalizing. Yeah, I think of it like those rainbow scarves that magicians pull out of their sleeves. It's like you start working on one thing and all of a sudden all of this other stuff comes up. And that's also because our traumas are connected. Our grief is connected because it probably showed up in a similar way. And those different parts of ourselves continue to show up over and over again. Exactly. And in case you're sort of new to attending to your grief, attending to your trauma, I want to maybe close out our conversation with this reminder or, or suggestion or even invitation to you that even though as you begin to do the work, it may feel in the beginning like, wait, wait a minute, did I just open Pandora's box here? Because as you said, the magician's scarf, and when is it going to end? The more we attend to it, the more we develop a kind of capacity, a kind of agency. As you said, we're able to develop our skill, our muscle of self-compassion. And so finding a safe space to do it, finding whether it's a therapist, a grief guide, friends, doing it in community is important. But yes, attending to it might mean you start to notice more things, but I would say that's actually a good thing and you build your capacity. What would you say to folks? I think a lot of people can have a fear around coming to therapy or starting whatever type of work it may be to work through stuff. And I think it's because in the back of our minds, we know like, even if I'm just going for this, there's all some of stuff, that stuff down there. Yeah. yeah. All of that stuff is going to come up. If you're seeing a therapist who is trauma-informed, we are going to help you build your capacity and not allow for too much to come up at once. I always tell people that this work is really slow, and I can't put this on my website because I know it would deter folks from seeing me, but my tagline would be, we're going to be here a while. (laughs) Because... Even though we want to just get through it and get better and get to the next stage of grief or work through the trauma, if we do it too quickly, we're going to bring the trauma back up and be be, re-traumatizing. Exactly. Because trauma is something happening too much, too fast, too soon. And so therapy can't look like that. And so that's why I know Lisa integrates a lot of mindfulness, just learning to watch your thoughts. and why we always have containment in the therapy room so that even if you do touch on something really deep, you're going to have a net to catch you. And moving towards, you know, requiring sort of long-term commitments if you're going to come do work with me because I was seeing people wanting to sort of drop in. And I do think at some point there are places, of course, and it's appropriate sometimes for kind of a tune-up or a check-in. But if you're really beginning your journey of unpacking things, we want to accompany you and companion you, keep it safe, and allow you to sort of to walk with you in a way that helps you build your capacity and your resiliency. And as you said, it's so 
countercultural, you know me, I always come back to sort of the cultural influences. We're so consumed with this top 10 list, five ways to, oh, I went to them. It was great. I just, he said something to me once. I had an epiphany and (laughs) ta-da. And while we can have those aha moments and those revelatory experiences, I'm not dismissing them. I've certainly had them myself. I think that does us this disservice because then we've set ourselves up with this expectation again that there's something wrong with me that, and there comes the shame, that I haven't sort of, quote unquote, figured it out or got over it by now. And so I so appreciate the ways in which you, I love, we're going to be here a while. I'm going (laughs) to, if I use that tagline, I'm going to source you for sure, but I love it. But even again, the power of narrative and the power of naming is if we can help people feel seen and understood that this is appropriate, then we're going to be less likely to trigger shame around the fact that we haven't sort of gotten there, wherever there is, by the way. So I already started the show by telling you this, but maybe you can tell our listeners, where can they find you? How can they follow along with the incredible work you're doing? I have a feeling this is going to be the first of a few conversations, to be honest, because I had a whole nother (laughs) list of things I wanted to talk with you about. But where can folks find you and follow you? Well, I am at Moving Parts Psychotherapy on Instagram. I am sometimes on TikTok, I think, under the same name, but I forget because I don't go on very much. And then my website is www.movingpartspsychotherapy.com. Awesome. Elise, thank you so much for honoring me with this time, with this rich conversation. It was an absolute pleasure. I've got so much to think about, and I know that our listeners do too. Thank you. I could honestly nerd out with you all day. So it was a pleasure. Thanks. Having spent decades in a more traditional clinical setting as a therapist, I recognize the importance of creating and holding space, using appropriate modalities of support, and helping my clients pace themselves as they heal. As founder of Reimagining Grief, I left my licensure as a clinical social worker behind, but brought with me my decades of experience as a helper, along with my lived experiences as a griever too. I offer individual grief support and consider myself a guide. My role is to accompany, educate, offer tools, and help my clients set a safe and comfortable pace as they learn to navigate the world in the wake of loss. If you're looking for that kind of support, I'm here for you. I currently have just a few more openings left for the early part of 2022. So I'm inviting you to learn more by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash support. Well, my friends, I hope you learned as much as I did from my conversation with Elise Kennedy today. As I mentioned, I don't think it'll be our last because there's so much more to learn and know and explore about the impact of trauma as it relates to grief. I appreciate the way she has incorporated her personal experiences alongside her deep clinical training and experiences to create a trauma-informed practice, helping so many individuals safely move through their trauma. Don't worry, you can learn more about her because I'll drop her website and social handles in the show notes for today's episode. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and that team over at StudioPod for helping me produce it too. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Elise Kennedy of Moving Parts Psychotherapy. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. Thank you.